0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the third episode of Through My Ears. My name is Tim Bausch, and I am a second-year PhD student studying music theory and cognition. Uh, Today, I will be talking with Dr. Stephanie Charos, one of our musicology faculty members. So, um, I'm curious to hear about what you're listening to right now.
1: So, okay, I'm going to be really um, honest about what happens in my life to make listening to music a real challenge. So, in addition to being incredibly busy when I'm on campus and That's the irony of being a music scholar when you're an academic music scholar is so much of your work is in the writerly world that it takes time to stop and listen to music. And uh, like I spent all day yesterday interfacing with students on their projects and giving them writing feedback and editing and doing that kind of work that there was no time to listen to music. And then I have two children. And it's been the most fascinating um, experience to be a parent and be a parent who cares deeply about music and realize that your two children are their own sentient beings who have opinions and ideas. And the last thing I want to do is, you know, map on my own ideas and prejudices about what I like and not like to them. So I don't have a lot of time, but two things have cropped up. So in our seminar, we um I kind of put a playlist together from Naxos and was thinking about certain musics that um were relevant to what we were talking about. And um, I have a real soft spot, just personally and aesthetically to laments <laughs> such a happy kind of music, um, but it's so beautiful. And so, out of one of our um, ideas in the class, I went back and was listening to Luigi Rossi, who was a Roman composer that then traveled and spent time in Paris and did a stint in France. Um, And I just really love the way his harmonies are just full of difficult, complex suspensions. And so I was listening to Luigi Rossi this week um, because I was inspired to go back to his music. And then completely in a totally different realm, um, an undergraduate in my music 3A class and I had been talking about merging her interest in classical music, but what's kind of happening in pop music. And I mentioned to her, because I had heard about it, but didn't really know her music, um, the rap artist Lizzo, who also is this like really greatly trained flute player. Um, And I thought she would be a great case study for the kind of project she was doing. And so I went and listened to a tiny NPR desk concert of Lizzo and was just blown away. So I've just been totally obsessed with Lizzo this week and watched her in a couple of different interviews as well, talk about her music. So um, yeah, so I'm just turned on to lots of different stuff. Um, If anything, I struggle. I find this to be a great irony that the different ways we can access music makes music so much easier to listen to and yet so much harder to listen to. Um, I'm not a big fan of just like a playlist or a kind of algorithm that decides what I want to listen to. Part of being a musicologist means that I want some control because I have very specific thoughts about what I want to hear. Um, but then, you know, it sort of puts me into what I think is an older interface of how we listen to music, which is choosing a recording and wanting to do that either through an MP3 player or through just a traditional CD player, you know. So sometimes just getting through that web <laughs> makes it, slows me down to actually listen to the music. Um, but yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I wanted to to ask about what your expertise as a musicologist and how that shapes what you listen to, but you kind of already touched on it.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, it's interesting because you listen to, you know, what I, I'm sure most listeners would expect you to listen to, um, Italian opera, Laments. Yeah. Um, but, but I don't
1: do that, off that often. Right.
0: And so you mentioned Lizzo, which yeah. is exceptional she's yeah. remarkable yeah. and so it really kind of combines your both of these little um sneak peeks into what you're listening to you have yeah. the advocacy with Lizzo you have the the confidence with Lizzo right. um and then you also have this completely different lament and so you're kind of fusing both of this social aspect of music what it can do to a group of people yeah. how it can bring people together
1: Hadn't thought about that way. I mean, oftentimes I don't think I'm consciously trying to do this, but I really um, embrace being a listener when I listen to music. And what I mean being a listener is I want to, and again, this I think is more unconscious than conscious, I want to shed the academic framework and I just want to feel the music. I want to just react to it in whatever sensory way I possibly can, which does not divorce from intellectual thought as well, um, but not with the kind of presumed frameworks that a musicologist would come at when listening to things. And I have always done that. I've always coveted that. Um, And I think it helps me when I do have to do the academic analysis of something that I'm so lucky to either have um, because I work on very distant past, a recorded fragment of or a live performance of. And I usually go first to, you know, the emotive experience that I'm ha- having first and foremost, and then use that to inform other aspects um, that are more cognitive or um, conceptual and involve kind of intellectual thought. But oftentimes I'm very free when I listen to music and I want it to be a complete, like, indulgent pleasure. Um, And so I listen to things from a very emotional place um, a lot of times. And I am incredibly curious and just want to be blown away. Oh, one of the great moments of my weekend was my son discovered Kubrick's 2001 and watched the movie and was just completely blown away by the music and just thought it was the best thing ever. And so to watch his little mind like explode with what music can do in a really great and important art film was just like watching myself at some phase earlier in my life of having that same experience. So that was really cool. So I want to be informed by my kids sometimes about what they care about and why they're listening to certain things. And I usually take it on with great enthusiasm and curiosity, kind of like I'm ready for anything. Tell me what you like. I want to know, you know. Mm. So we have a lot of fun doing that.
0: Yeah, I think that's better than saying no. You must listen to this. You can't <laughs> listen to this. What a drag! I think that's great. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. Uh, so it seems as if the academic practice of quote unquote music is a bit of a mystery to the general population, uh, let alone different disciplines within the field of music. I was wondering if you'd be able to tell us, in your own words, of course, what musicology means to you.
1: Wow, that's a really great question, um, and I do think. The mystery part <laughs> is something I experience all the time. You know, everyone from someone who is completely unconnected to a university setting and to scholarly work is very mystified by what it means to study music. That doesn't mean playing notes or working an instrument somehow. But even fellow academics across a, a campus would are a little bit flummoxed by, by what it means, especially I think one of the problems is the word musicology, which is a very loaded term in a lot of ways because I think the notion of ology makes it seem so weighted. Like, how can there be a study of all music, an ology of music? And in some ways, I like still having a connection to that word because having a sense to what the history of musicology is um, and where it started from, where there really was an initial... Um, inspiration to try to do the full all-around study of music. And over time, it became really clear that this was much more of a historical discipline. And so I often qualify when I meet people and really first tell them, if they have no idea of what scholarly work is, I tell them I'm a historian. And I happen to work on the history of music as a cultural form. So if they know a little bit more or if they're a fellow academic, I really tell them that really what I am is a cultural historian— who happens to focus all their work on music as a cultural practice.
0: That's really great. It's yeah. a wonderful answer.
1: Yeah, but, I, but it's just I want to go back to what, where I think, you know, what I, what do I think musicology means now? I'm really fascinated by that question and it would be a great exercise for our discipline, our field, and our, our society to just do a random survey and have people answer that because I think you would get a very diverse set of responses. I think a lot of that speaks to generational divides that you see in disciplines at whatever time in history where older people in the discipline are still holding to more traditional or more sort of um, formal ways of thinking about the discipline. And then you definitely see a younger generation who are invested into upending those traditions and rethinking them in a lot of ways. So I really feel that in the last 10 to 15 years, the discipline has been been in quite Vibrant transition, but for that reason, it's really hard to put your finger on an exact pulse and say this is what musicology is. Um, at first, I found that to be disorienting and a bit even frustrating, and now I'm starting to sense that it is actually rejuvenating for the field, and I feel like it's opening up doors to different kinds of voices, different kinds of scholars, different diverse perspectives, and diverse kinds of research. Um, that I think is enriching what musicology is. It's getting closer to an ology again in a way that I think is really welcoming.
0: That's really great. And so I want to comment on a couple of things that you said. Sure. Um, you mentioned briefly other disciplines, and you mentioned the word diversity a few times. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in conversations with you in the past, you've mentioned you know your connections with people outside of the field of music. Yeah. How important do you think that is?
1: Well, I can speak for myself without commanding what other people should do. Of course. Um, I would say that um, in in more recent phases of my career, I think I kind of realized that I always came to this with a sense of seeing music as part of a web work um, with other ways of being, other ways of just being human. I just didn't know how to articulate that. I didn't quite realize that that's where my interest level with, was, and I do think that it might even link to where I got trained, like where my experiences were as a student first and foremost. And um, I was an undergraduate at the University of Chicago, and um, the approach to the undergraduate education was to really treat it as like a, a general education um, and one that was very much invested in primary sources and great books. Um, And then, of course, questioning what it means to be a great book. (laughs) And it was interesting to be a student there because I think music felt like a very vibrant way to understand a lot of those things. But I was really educated across disciplinary boundaries. And I now realize that phases after that in my graduate career, finishing my Ph.D., first phases of my career, I didn't quite realize how much that shaped me. Um, and pretty early on, by virtue of being invested in early modern culture and specifically in dramatic forms like opera and related vocal forms, I realize you can't really study that and do research on that without thinking across disciplines because those are multimedia forms in which... Um, what informs them and the different artistic practices that inform them, as well as the social and cultural practices that inform them, required me to be invested in these other disciplines. Um, And so I really couldn't see myself in any other way than being an interdisciplinary scholar, even before there was such a thing. I just sort of, it became organic and natural to think that. And now I think it's just kind of what I should do. It's de rigueur for me. Um, So I try to pass that on to students because I think it opens up A lot of new ways and perspectives for them to think about their investments in something they're passionate about, and it could be about music or it could be about things connected to music, Um, and not to be afraid of taking on other frameworks and other disciplines. It doesn't mean that you have to have some sort of stamped badge that you're an expert in that field or many of those fields. You can still be very conversant in using intellectual, theoretical, historical frameworks um, and use that where you feel your expertise is best. And you can do that respectfully. and you can do that with modesty. But it really does change your scholarship in a lot of ways,
0: right. And so you mentioned this uh, these different hats. yeah, I'm curious as to when you decided you wanted to pursue the musicology career path.
1: Yeah. um that's a great question to ask all college students <laughs> and then graduate students because uh, it's it's a strange. It's a strange thing that doesn't really exist. It's not like you can say, well, I want to be a doctor or I want to be a lawyer. You know, who grows up to want to be a musicologist? (laughs) I protect my children from this very much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think, again, I'll I'll credit my undergrad experience. Um, I was a music—I ended up becoming a music major after my first two years at University of Chicago, as that was the normal practice you were only allowed to declare after your first two years. And I did it because I came to music through the door that I think a lot of people do, especially if they've studied classical or European art music. And I was, um, you know, a committed and serious pianist as a young person through high school, although very much realizing that was not my career path. But I was very serious in terms of my investment to it. I, I put a lot of time into it and I loved it. And so when I first started taking classes my first and second year of my undergrad, and um, the programs were small at Chicago. Just the undergrad program was small in itself. And then the music department was especially small. I was in a class that was more like what we experience in seminars, where I had maybe eight to 10 people. Um, and I had no idea that the person in front of me who was the professor were these incredibly important and erudite scholars of of music and musicology. I didn't know who they were. <laughs> um, but the way they conducted their class, the way that they wove into their class music, like music as recorded, music as played. And what, I remember one scenario where the person playing the class, it was Lawrence Dreyfus, who's a Bach scholar and a vocal, viola de gambaist And he was there with his instrument and talking through issues that he was writing in his book. <laughs> and we had scores on our laps and texts that he had us read. And we were only 10 people in a room and we were having this really vibrant discussion. And I just thought, oh my goodness, sign me up. This is the best thing ever. It somehow for me, like connected all the dots of what really excited me. Music, making music, thinking about music, thinking about how music makes us feel and thinking about how music defines us socially. And again, I couldn't have articulated that at 19 or 20, but I now realize that's what was happening in that moment. And so I pretty quickly realized that that's what I wanted to do. And University of Chicago was a place where a lot of people went on and did PhDs. Um, Whether that's a good thing or a curse, I don't know, but that's kind of the path. Um, And there were a lot of graduate students who were around me um, in libraries and in sections where I studied. They were very kind and generous. And when they saw, you know, um, dedicated undergrads like me, they would feed me books. They're like, you got to read this. You'll really like this, you know. And before I knew it, they had really inspired me to do this. Um, But again, I I think like with a certain amount of naivete, I arrived in a PhD program, not quite realizing that as as a lot of undergrads who then go to graduate school, that what you're really doing is not exactly what you did in your undergraduate courses. Um, So I had that same kind of process of realizing what it was to become a scholar and sometimes had my doubts and questions if that's what I wanted to do. But Eventually, you know, I persevered and really thought that this was still the dream that I remember in that one class where all the dots were being connected. It's just that it's a lot harder than it seems. <laughs> it's a lot of work to get there, right? Um, but very rewarding. I wouldn't change any of it.
0: Well, we're glad you didn't change any of it. So. Yeah, glad <laughs> um, <Thank> you. <laughs> you know, on my kind of list of notes I had, um, I was prepared to ask you kind of the juvenile question of what would you be if you weren't, you know, pursuing musicology. Yeah, but you kind of outlined that in your previous answer. You can talk about, you want to focus on how music makes us feel, the social mm-hmm. constructs of it. And you've mm-hmm. outlined all these different <laughs> subfields mm-hmm. um, that aren't, I mean, yes, they all deal with music in one mm-hmm. way or another, but they, they also don't. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, so I don't think I need to ask you that question anymore, because you, you kind of are pursuing multiple paths.
1: Yeah, I think the thing that Also, I didn't mention, because you're not doing that when you're an undergraduate yet until you're a graduate student, UTA, I think if you would have asked me much younger, like in high school even, I probably even then would have said I could see myself doing something that involved teaching. And as you probably can tell, the relationship between research and teaching is one that is both obvious and meant to be reciprocal in a lot of ways, but it also is one that is difficult when you're in a research university because research has all the primacy in a lot of ways and teaching is meant to be like sort of secondary, even though it's not, it shouldn't be and necessarily shouldn't be treated that way. So for me, it's never been that those two arenas are separate from one another. And in fact, they deeply, deeply inform one another. Um, So every classroom experience, whether it's with undergraduates at a general non-major level or with majors or then at the graduate level. Every classroom experience feels like both a workshop for intellectual ideas and a place where I feel I'm giving guidance, advice, care, showing empathy, um, humbling myself to learn from my students. You know, And I think that that realm could have been adapted in a lot of ways. Now that I have children, I can imagine that I could have really loved teaching children of different ages. Um, and so the teaching part of my world has been fairly consistent. I'd say that's the through line all the way that kind of ties together the social and cultural in a lot of ways and, and kind of the human contact, like why the human contact really matters to me.
0: That's a great answer. Thank you. Thank um, <laughs> you. So I'm going to skip around my notes a little bit because you've brought up some really, really great points about teaching and how research influences teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm fortunate enough to have taken and well, currently taking a class with you, and it was a tremendously rewarding experience. Uh, I found your ability to promote and nurture an inclusive and comfortable environment, both beneficial and refreshing. And I was just wondering if you could talk about, for one, how you came to adopt the style of teaching and two, how important it is to foster this kind of attitude as we move into the new decade.
1: Great question. Um, I want to talk a little bit about some very recent things that have happened for me that have really changed um, the way or maybe just reinforced the way I teach and helped implement some things that I'm doing. But I'll just say that I hadn't really thought too much about where I got the ideas to do what I did, except maybe coming from a place of whether it was frustration or just not feeling confident about knowing what I was doing. So I think you might already experience this a bit, but I think one of the crazy mysteries in our graduate training is that we don't really get trained how to teach. We get trained how to be a scholar. We get trained how to do our research, and we do teach. It's part of the way we support ourselves, and we get a stipend. Um, But actually getting instruction about what you're really doing in the classroom you know, from start to finish, what content you bring in, what kind of questions you ask, what's your demeanor. Like none of that really gets, you know, thoroughly covered. It certainly did not for me. Maybe now it is getting covered here at UCSB. But in my program, I just was thrown in there and I found it incredibly uncomfortable. And I only learned, you know, by trial and error, watching how people responded. And then when I got my job here at UCSB, which was my first job, you know, I kind of lectured using the model that I knew best, which was you get up in front of a group of people and you have a prepared lecture. And I was just, I knew myself, I was never the kind of person to go into a class and just wing it. I I was always very prepared. And I liked having, if I could, live music or as certainly recorded music as being very present, as well as a number of different kinds of sources and texts, like primary sources. And, you know, so already being able to use whatever technology to visually present those materials. But even with good organization and good materials, something didn't quite sit right with me. And I was doing it year after year. And I remember it felt that there was a certain population of a group that I would get that were with me the whole way. And then there was a group that I just could tell I was missing. Either they weren't engaged, they were overwhelmed, they just found it boring. It was hard for me to tell. I just don't know why, but I never thought about it. It just kind of came from within. I just decided one day, this whole lecture thing is just stale. It's not working. And this was without really stopping and paying attention to research out there, which was very much speaking to this. And so, part of a generation that was already shifting away from the t- typical conventional lecture format, I was already doing that. I was just part of doing that, part of making that process happen out of need. And I started moving away from podiums and walking through the classroom. Um, So in 1145, this is easy because the place where I am is down below and the students are all on kind of risers up above. And I would just walk up and down those aisles and talk to them rather than talk at them. And so the conversational approach, just like what we're doing right now, to me is the best way we convey our ideas and the, ba- the best way we receive our ideas. And so I tried to bring that conversational quality or what we would call more using a more, more complex term, the dialogic. I would bring that constantly to the classroom because it felt natural to me. It felt like that's what we should be doing. Every class should feel like a seminar. Every class should feel like you matter as a student. And it really shifted. Like, I could really tell I was getting that group of students who otherwise felt to me like they weren't engaged. And then in this last year, I was fortunate to be invited to be one of the Mellon Fellows for the Engaging Humanities program. I didn't know exactly what I was getting into, but it sounded good, so I applied And this was the inaugural year, and I was so pleased to be part of a seminar of other like faculty in the humanities and graduate students who were all fellows. And we were put through the paces in a spring seminar where we took a class, and we thought a lot about teaching and a lot about our pedagogy and a lot about disciplinary assumptions that we make that students don't know. And that can really deaden the sense of engagement in a classroom. Um, and a big portion of what we talked about was not just explaining more directly with a lot more sort of um, self-knowledge about what we were conveying to them, but also uh, an incredible amount of empathy for who they are as students, what they come to with the, when they arrive in the classroom, and in what ways are we failing or meeting them in that exchange. And so that, in a way supported a lot of the things I was doing, but it provided me language and terminology and research that exists, you know, out there about pedagogy and teaching um, and frameworks and approaches that I just didn't have. So I was, I was working from my gut and it was pushing in the right direction, but it was much more messy. And this provided me a way to kind of formalize that And I've really been, um, I just feel really transformed about it. So it's been a really exciting time for my team. I've always loved being in the classroom, but this last year has been really mind altering for me in a lot of ways.
0: Right. And so it sounds like this kind of shift from treating students, not like students, but treating them like people. Yeah. Um, the focus and the shift of talking to them and not at them. Mm-hmm. Um, I've noticed even in my own teaching, which I don't have nearly as much experience as you have, mm-hmm. but just that simple shift of talking to them like people, mm-hmm. making them feel like they matter is hugely beneficial. And the the changes are staggering and noticeable exactly. too. So that brings me to kind of a, a, an interesting point. I've learned this feedback in my own teaching through incorporating. Um, I, I like to send out just a simple Google form, an anonymous. How is this week feeling for you? How is the lectures going? How's my teaching? Is it being effective? What can I do to be more effective? And I found the the feedback to be incredible. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering, how can we use uh, new technologies and non traditional ways of teaching in the classroom to move forward?
1: Yeah, I think again, like all of this is happening really fast and in a really dynamic way. So I'm not quite even caught up to where my ambition is. Um, Along the lines of what you did, and I've done the sort of evaluations that are different than the university evaluations, and they tend to be more comfortable for students. But one thing that I did this quarter, inspired by the Mellon preparation that I hadn't used ever before, was I had them do a project. The project involved collaboration. The project involved oral presentation. I've done this several times in a row for the one class that I'm teaching this quarter. And it's always been challenging. And I know that because collaboration is very difficult and we get no training for that. But um, one of the things I had to do as part of my Mellon training was I had to interview someone in the in, in, in a different job field, certainly not an academic field. And I ended up working with someone in the business field who is in human resources and works for a very large company who tends to sort of get a very top demographic of millennial aged um people who are really good and really dynamic, but then, you know, will leave the job after three or four years. And he was telling me that he loves hiring people in the humanities because they are very adaptable and they're very good at thinking through different problems and coming up with creative solutions. But he said one of the things that's hard for everybody is that we don't really learn to collaborate, but everything they do in their company involves collaboration. It involves giving critique and taking critique. So I involved all of, inspired by that conversation with that one person in this company, I very visibly told them about my goals for this course was not just learning about music and society, but understanding that some of the skills in the course were adaptable to many different career paths, both with music and beyond music. And I had them do the same collaborative project, the same oral presentation, but I had them provide peer feedback. And take the peer feedback. And then the most rewarding part was I had them write a reflection piece about the whole process, about them doing, presenting, working together, taking feedback, writing a blog post. So writing something less traditional in as, as a writing exercise. That was hands down the most important feedback and document of learning and pedagogy I've ever done. They took the reflection piece incredibly seriously. They said such important things and such honest things about how they learned, they were humbled by hearing someone's knowledge that they didn't assume the person had or listening to someone that they otherwise would have not listened to because they didn't know how to listen to them. What was difficult about presenting, what was difficult about collaborating, what it taught them. So in addition to, I think, Getting evaluations, I would add that getting people to reflect, getting me to reflect in front of them and getting them to reflect its students reflect was some of the most valuable things that I would now always include in my teaching. I just loved that. That was really great. And so it provided me um, an opportunity to get up in front of the classroom and tell them why I thought that was so important, what was difficult about it, and why I'm generally doing all the things I do in the classroom. So I became much more, open to them about the process. And I found that to be a really different change in the way they reacted to me.
0: So more inclusion.
1: Yes, Yeah. absolutely. And inclusion from them being passive recipient to thinking about this being a model of how you take an active role in your education, an active role in your learning, and to think of themselves as being an educator in some ways. So that was a really big shift for me.
0: And also that uncomfortable act of doing all of those things, which not many people are comfortable with doing, I think that really puts a lot of things on the table for yeah. people. And I think it not only kind of exposes them, yeah. but it also teaches them what they know how to do well, what they know well, that they need to work on. Yeah. And it's a great exercise. I'd yeah. like to adopt that myself, if you don't mind. No, please do. <laughs> um, so how has something like this shaped your teaching philosophy over the the years you've been here since two thousand and two, mm-hmm. correct. Mm-hmm. And so how has you know the trajectory of your teaching philosophy?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um about ten or twelve years into it, I was, um, you know, just completely overwhelmed to receive one of the university teaching awards. and I had to write a teaching philosophy then. And I remember in that, I stressed this conversational, dialogic aspect, the the sense of making the person feel like, They're part of the process and that they're in a conversation with me making knowledge um, rather than just taking it in. And so I'm just surprised at how consistent that's been. Um, So I don't think much of my philosophy has changed except now stressing certain things that were already there, but I wasn't necessarily identifying them as things that I needed to talk openly about I think it's just natural for me as a person to feel a certain amount of empathy for people and empathy for my students. But I don't think I so visibly talked about it and got them to think about cultivating empathy for their peers, for the class, for their own work and their careers. So that was huge. So I would say like moving towards just more visibly bringing to light some of the things that were unspoken in my teaching style – um, has made it much more effective for me and for students, I think.
0: Right. And if I could just add a little bit to that, um, being a student in one of your seminars, you know, it's, I, I never felt like you were ever above us as mm-hmm. a class, as an intellectual. There's a very equal playing field, which yeah. I think is incredibly important in a teaching environment. I as agree. Well.
1: I agree. And I wouldn't have ever thought of it differently, but you have to kind of consciously think through the power differential that's there. And I've been talking about that in my classes, you know, this year, much more than I ever have. Just acknowledging that I come into this room already with a certain amount of power that you can't possess. And I am both aware of that, not always comfortable about it, but it is the situation that is. I'm here to guide you, but I'm also here to award you a grade. And I'm here to determine whether you were successful at this or not. And we have to be aware of what that relationship means. And so if you can make them feel like they're a participant in that and that they're there to understand your role and respect it, but also realize that you are human, you're there to make mistakes, you are there to be corrected, you're there to learn, it can level that 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 field much more. And again, it's just that open sense of honesty and recognizing what's happening and why it's happening. Um, so again, I think even this, the seminar we just have been experiencing was also very different for me, um, because I didn't quite realize how much I was applying these things that I've been thinking a lot about recently and in the past. And it was just a great training ground to try it out. And, um, I mean, you were all an amazing group, uh, but it was really visible to me. It moved me greatly to be able to have those conversations. So it was, um, one of the top experiences I've had.
0: It was refreshing for us, too. Oh, thank you. Um, But it's like a perfect stepping stone to my next question. Um, We'll talk about the specifics of your research area in a little bit, but I want to tie back in a statement you made about your undergraduate career where your professor was working through issues in their book with you as Mm -hmm. students. And um, it seems like you've maintained that kind Mm of practice, which is rewarding to everyone involved. Mm -hmm. And so how uh, can you speak a little bit about how you use not the gaps, but, you know, how you can supplement your research Mm -hmm. using the seminar as a tool?
1: So I kind of feel like in some ways I'm my worst enemy because an easier path would be to, you know, have a little like collection of seminars that you repeat over and over. That would be the smart thing to do. And I sometimes do that. But seminars end up being this like incredibly um, inviting opportunity for me to try out new things and work out ideas. And Especially recently, this has been completely altering for me in terms of where I want my research to go and what I'm learning. So I feel um, almost greedy about those situations. I can't help but want to make them a workshop of ideas rather than just repeat things that I do. So this coming fall, I was trying to figure out what path would I take? Would I go and do something, you know, well-formed that I could then present or would I open it up to figuring out something new? And eventually I went with where, of course, my my desire wanted to go, which is to make it a workshop of new things for me. So I ended up starting with a problem that I was working out in my own writing and research, um, in which I was looking at something that was already starting to kind of formalize and crystallize into patterns and formations by the beginning of the 18th century. And that was exactly what I was looking at in the piece of writing that I had, that I had constructed, which was the ways in which you could start to see different and hybrid forms um, start to manifest in opera practices and start to get formalized into something that looks like what we call in the 18th century drama per musica. And I was uncomfortable with the way that we just kind of assume that that arrives and not think about what's the process of getting to the arrival. What's the swerve into that? Um, and I've I've been influenced and thought much about this because I'm really attracted to, to historians who theorize, theorize how history works. And I'm especially attracted to the historical problems of what happens when you have multiple elements that are um, kind of ongoing but not quite formalized, incohate still, and um, before they become something that we can recognize as a historical transformation or a pattern. Um, and how do and, and 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 so the larger question for me as a music scholar is, what does music do in that? Like, how does music play a role? Is it anticipating that? Is it forecasting it? Is it reacting to it? So that's kind of like the big theoretical picture of where I want my next project to go. What I've been, sort of trying to figure out is, to what extent do I want early modernism to be a place to work that out? And my seminar this fall helped me answer that. Because what I tried to do was push back, um, historically speaking, or chronologically speaking, push backwards a sense of settlement into that period where you have dynamism and change happening. And a course I taught last year on voice and voice studies helped inspire my thoughts here because I realized that the realm of the of the sensory, the sensorium, as a lot of people like to bat around as a nice term, is a place where that incohate um, sense of thought, sense of feeling, rather than thought, or rather than speech, or rather than um, practiced ideas. Are taking place and they're as important as the textual and the lingual and the speech, Um, but they are much harder to put your finger on and how to study them. And for this reason, the artistic practices, the world of the arts, and especially music, is a really fertile place to do that work. But how we do it and how we practice it is much more complicated. So the seminar allowed me to try that out and think about what really is um, a process of thinking through the problems that feelings and the sensory bring to history and bring to the ways we try to organize and logically put a historical narrative together. But then to do that from a number of different angles in which music is the through line but elements of class, race and identity, politics, especially religion, that are all really vibrantly in dialogue with one another in the 17th century um, were critical for shaping that process of going from the incohate to something more formalized and rigorous. Um, and so it was entirely useful for me in ways that I could have never have predicted. Um, and so I always go back to the fact that those workshop-like seminars end up being the cornerstones of then formalized research because they often allow me to think openly. But that dialogic I talked about at the undergrad level is so critical at the graduate level because graduate students throw back to me ideas that I wouldn't have thought about or they read something in a different way than I would. And then that's part of a larger conversation in my head of where I want to take my research so it was it was a really um uh, like one of the most satisfying fall quarters that I've had in a long time in terms of what the seminar accomplished for me
0: yeah I mean it was a valuable experience, I think to be a part of that Thanks. that kind of process yeah it's it's exciting to be a part of that process. It's kind of you know it it reminds us or at least me why you know we are in this field to begin with and you know this this kind of back and forth this collaboration as you keep talking about
1: thank you, yeah um a lot of um Feedback, it wasn't meant to be feedback, it was just conversation and seminar, but for me, it was feedback, has provided me uh, a real wealth of possibilities. And you, in particular, were the one in our last seminar that noted the sense of the human in all of this. And just by giving that a label, thinking about it in that way, has just like made me run. So I will credit you for that because it, really helped formalize something that I think I was moving around I was to use my first book I was orbiting around that but I quite didn't have the sense of where I wanted to go and the seminar what we accomplished and hearing different voices like your own articulate what you felt was important um help highlight those things for me so I'm I'm just really grateful it was I'm, terrific
0: I'm honored <laughs> um so before we come to a close I just wanted to open up to you if you had any comments or thoughts you wanted to share before we close and wrap things up.
1: Yeah, I'd love to ask you. I mean, I've already asked this in the seminar situation, but the same question about um where we think our fields are going or where just generally the study of music is going as you as a younger person and someone in the throes of figuring out your career, figuring out your place as a graduate student and working as a a pedagogue, as a teacher with lots of students and grading them and providing them feedback. So I'm curious to hear you talk about for a moment where you think the study of music is going as it faces the crossroads we're at in the early, still early part of the 21st century in a place in which other urgencies and crises could easily make music feel... Like a frivolous or superfluous thing. So I'm just curious to see what you would say about that.
0: Um, Our field as, you know, music in general, I think, um, and like you've hinted at earlier in this conversation, is going in very unique directions. The most recent Society for Music Theories conference had a very explosive and groundbreaking plenary session about I don't want to get into the details of what it was about, but it was, you know, very eye-opening, very um, expansive to our field. And so I think where we should go, I don't know if it's going to, I hope that it does, but where I think it should go is to maybe step outside of the concert halls, maybe talk to more lesser known artists, people who are trying to make their own sound, make their own voice, give people voices. I think this whole idea of giving people a voice who deserve a voice, which I think everyone does. I think that is something that we absolutely need to, to focus on and to, to really start doing and start bringing importance to everyone, like we do with our students, make them feel equal, make them feel included, and give that voice to people who don't get a voice, who don't feel like they have a voice, rather. And so for me, you know, personally, in my research, you know, I study a lot of, I mean, the... The rigors of music theory, but I, I try to apply it to the brain and how we perceive certain things. Um, my current research pers- uh, specifically perception of musical vibrations and does that work in the same way that we do with the the high fidelity audio that we hear in our ears? Is it the same? And so, bringing inclusivity to people who might not be able to hear as well as others, you know, can we develop and adapt vibration to? Give them the same enjoyment that people who don't have any issues with hearing can experience, Um, but also at the same time is studying music in just a different way entirely. Yes, it does have harmony; it does function between you know harmony goes to certain things, and sometimes harmony breaks its own rules, and then we you know it generates its own style of music, and we we look at that, we focus on that, and we come to our own conclusions about that. But what if we study music in a different way, you know? And at least with my vibration studies is maybe we can look at music on a physical level instead of just notes on a page. And so I think, you know, being able to interpret and gather data, like hardcore data from music. And a lot of scholars do this in the music information retrieval, excuse me, discipline. They do this all the time working with Spotify, Pandora, Apple Music and generating these these data sets and almost these corpus studies. Um, I remember when I was a less experienced music theorist and starting to read these articles and I'd be handed a, a corpus study and I remember <laughs> being very uninterested in reading. i like, okay, wow, they looked at thousands of things and they made a conclusion. I'm like awesome. But now that I'm I know more about it and I more know more about the data acquisition bit of it, it's really exciting and really formative, I think. So I think to kind of sum up a very windy and unspecific answer is just to make it more inclusive. I think looking at music from a variety of angles and elevate it from the piece of music that we read it from and look at everything from that point of view.
1: Yeah, I I love it. It wasn't windy at all. It had much connectivity in what you were saying. It was terrific. And I think you're boy, you're definitely hitting on a important pulse that I can sense right now that is happening in our field, thinking about sound, thinking about vibration and the sense, the senses. Um, so that's that would be really important. And um, watching my undergrads in a class that I do teach that is meant to be incredibly broad and and making the point to them that all the music that I do present to them and involve as cases, as examples, are meant to not privilege one or the other and move across time and from high to low, from local to global, is intentional for them to understand that it can be this inclusive thing. And it's been so interesting to see different reactions um, that surprise me, you know, so um, from people who aren't as familiar with art music to be turned onto it and want to know more but maybe even feel conflicted about studying it because it has certain associations of, to them, of an elitism or a certain orientation that they feel they can't share. So that was really interesting. Or then presenting music of such different sorts that are meant to be, to, to make the statement of inclusion and to have people afterwards come up to me and say, well, thank you so much for taking that music seriously because it's a music that means something to me, but I didn't think it was something we could study, you know? So that's now that a student is saying that to me, like was shocking still that there is a sense that they already come in as freshmen with a sense of that there's something right or wrong or accepted and not accepted, you know? So that was really telling. And I think with the way you spoke about where you see the music feels going could um, counter that. Um, it's, it's a lot of undoing because we have a lot of gatekeeping that has been part of who we are in our disciplines, and there were really good reasons why those boundaries were put down and those gates were erected. I understand them. They functioned a certain way then, um, but I do think now we're in a process where we're trying very hard to deconstruct them, erase them maybe, and rethink what our boundaries are if we even need them. And how we can articulate why music matters, you know, why music matters in a humanistic um, orientation, why music matters in a more scientific orientation, you know, and why it has a place for the human, why it has a place in society. So that's like my takeaway I want students to walk away with. It's not so much that you're going to become someone who has um, music as part of your career. Great if you do. I'm really happy if you do. But maybe what matters more is that you are able to articulate Why this expressive practice and form, whether it's notes on a page, vibrations you feel, a performance that is artistic or not artistic, either way, like it is something that marks us as who we are and it can be a lesson that you can derive and then apply in so many different ways.
0: Right. And this acceptability of how we let this music define us is really important.
1: Absolutely. And
0: even just to push that further, just expanding what we consider music, you know, just the fact that you said students come to you saying, you know, not explicitly, but that this is right or wrong. like That's horrifying.
1: Yeah, it is. Um, I mean. It is. I mean, it suggests that there's some learning that is being imparted to them. Right. Because they didn't just come up with that. Something happened to them to assume that, right? Um, And so having them then stop and think about how training and transmission is critical to the process of what it means to think of music as a socialized activity is critical, right? And it was great to have them do that critical thinking um, because they realized like, oh, wait, I wasn't just born thinking this. Something (laughs) happened along the way for me to assume those things. Anyway, so it was great to hear your thoughts. It's always inspiring for me.
0: Yeah, you know, the things I think about a lot, but I've never actually, I don't think I've ever actually vocalized them. So Mm. thank you for having me do such a thing. Well, wonderful. Uh, This has been an incredibly fruitful conversation. Thank you again. It was completely
1: my pleasure. This was terrific. Thank you.